So congratulations for making it through your first day of loving-kindness. Maybe a little different than you were expecting. We all arrive with certain ideas or assumptions or expectations about how this boundless loving heart is going to be radiating out in all directions, floating, suffusing, and, and then we come into a stark experience. Sometimes it's very beautiful and boundless like that, but I imagine for many of you, certainly what I heard in the groups today, that what you were encountering was maybe flavors of that at times, but also just the humdrum of being human and having a body and being tired and restless and foggy-brained and Uh, And also just getting to grips with the practice, which for many of you to do an intensive form like this is is a new form. And uh, easier said than done. So even if you have a regular practice of metta in your day, in your week, that when we come into an intensive retreat practice, I know for myself, it usually disappears. that capacity to uh, radiate and exude and feel that genuine care. It seems to somehow um, sort of be afraid of the light or something. So, So this is why we practice, to really hopefully remind ourselves of this innate quality. This is not something foreign to us. It's not something that we're just uh, downloading the software at IMS, the meta software. No, it's something that's innate to our being, innate to our heart. And yet, like many things that are innate, it gets covered over, it gets obscured. We forget. We overlook. We numb out. We've gotten busy, we've prioritized other things. And so really these, I think of retreats as remember emotions, or a deep remembering, really a deep coming home to our nature, to our nature that's loving, that's awake, that's aware, that we have perhaps not been so abiding in. And maybe it takes a while to reconnect with what's true, what's essential. So one of my favorite Dharma teachers, Gary Lawson from the Far Side comics, he has this great cartoon of, I think it relates to this topic, so the cartoon of uh, Satan in hell. And... Uh, he's shouting to his mother, no, mom, no, stop. And underneath the caption says, despite his repeated efforts to stop his mother, uh, he couldn't refrain her from offering cookies and milk to the freshly accursed. So there's a new bunch of recruits in hell and she's got this little cute, you know, you know horns and tail and a penny with the devil on it and a tray with cookies and milk. That our nature, 
the, the goodness of our nature is unstoppable. And hopefully one of the things that you connect with here is the goodness of your practice, the goodness of your intention for being here, to cultivate the heart, the goodness of your own nature. We come into this world with innate goodness, with open loving hearts. And then, you know, life happens and growing up happens and all kinds of various things that happen to close that heartfulness down. So we are reminding ourselves and hopefully you're getting tastes and flavors of that as you sit, as you also feel into the field and the goodness of the field and the goodness of our common commonality, common intention. And we're also remarkably resilient. You know, one of the things I've learned through teaching these last twenty years almost, and as a therapist and, and other forms of working with people, coaching and is just you know the tremendous lives and challenges people have had. In in way in, in having to deal with things that make me surprised, people aren't broken, but they're not. They keep uh, working, healing, struggling. So, hopefully, we can also tune into that the the tenaciousness of the human spirit, even despite whatever difficult circumstances you've had, and we've all had some, some more than others, but all had some and maybe still in some. So I want to share a little story um, about the tenaciousness of the heart that speaks to this, really this uh, innate quality of love that we all share. So this is from D.S. Bennett. And uh, she says, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so that wasn't good timing on my part. She answered, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I'd carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed, I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now, everything will be all right, I love you. Everything will be all right, I love you. This is from a six-year-old child. So maybe some of you can resonate with that story. That we actually know how to heal our hearts. And in that very difficult, traumatic situation, that was what her response, her wise response to that, was to be that loving presence that sounded like it was so lacking. 
So I asked the question at the beginning of the retreat, what drew, what draws you to this practice? What draws you to opening the heart, to cultivating love? And it's often many different things. Some of you may be inspired to be here by people you know or people you've studied with or people you look up to who are beacons of kindness, beacons of compassion, maybe somebody in your family or a spiritual teacher or His Holiness Dalai Lama, someone that's clearly developed this beautiful, radiant heart. I think a lot of what brings us here is pain. Our own pain, our own struggles, the pain of the world, the pain of our relationship to others. And of course, as we're hearing in the groups and um, you'll be working with through these days, the complexity of relationships. You know, someone said today, I started wishing meta for my benefactor and then all of a sudden I realized all the, you know, the, the complexity of that relationship and the difficulties and wondering if, the, if she could find a benefactor. And that could be true with a friend or anybody you call to mind. Right? We see the, the challenge of human relationships. And particularly, I think what draws many of us here is the pain in relationship to our, ourselves, the way our hearts are closed or shut down to ourselves, maybe numbed, And one of the things I see that's most sad as I work with students all over is how we are disconnected from our own goodness, our own worth, our own value. We can't see our good qualities, our gifts. And having just written about the inner critic and spending a lot of time reflecting on that and talking to people, and um, you know, I know that's definitely one of the causes, the ways that we listen to the voices in our head, probably partly passed on from our conditioning, that are very negatively skewed to what's wrong, to what's deficient, to what we're lacking, to what we think isn't enough. And as if we internalize that messaging long enough, what happens is a very distorted sense of worth and value and our own goodness. I know for myself, I think I wasn't really, I was partly looking for some, I was suffering a lot as a young man and I was partly looking but I was clueless about what I was looking for except I knew I was really unhappy. A lot of internal suffering, a very heavy critic, very intense self-judgment. And I happily, luckily stumbled into a Buddhist retreat center in the East End of London in the early 80s, which was probably the only one of two centers there at the time. And uh, stumbled upon these, this practice, mindfulness practice and loving kindness practice. And I didn't know my good fortune at the time, I was 19, I didn't know my good fortune of having uh, the opportunity to, to find a way to transform that negative lens and those critical voices. 
I just thought, as we often do, I thought my thoughts were true. That they're real, that they're objective. It might be something you ask yourself, do I believe my thoughts? Do I think they're true? Do I have an accurate self-perception? You know, through this practice, what we see is our perception is not actually uh, necessarily aligned with reality. As the Buddha said, that which we conceive is ever other than is so. Same with perception. And one of the things I talk about in the book is this phenomenon of imposter syndrome, which is afflicting a large swathe of the population, where we feel like a fraud, we feel like a fake. We feel like if people only knew, like if, if the teachers only knew what my practice was really like, they'd kick me out. Or if they really knew what I was like in my job, you know, I wouldn't have a job on Monday. Or if I, my partner really knew my deeper inner self, they may leave. We, we start distrusting our own goodness, our own capacity, our own value. And this afflicts you know, many and all. This is from um, Maya Angelou. She writes, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. <laughs> Meryl Streep said in an interview, Who would want, why would anyone want to see me again in a movie? I don't know how to act anyway, so why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, so if she can't act, then I don't know who can. So wherever we uh, are and however we arrive here, you know, this integration of mindfulness and metta, this ability to meet what is with a kind, loving, curious attention is where we start. And so, whatever arises in the space of this week, one of the things, aside from cultivating metta, generating kindness through the phrases, we're also asked to meet and hold lovingly what's here. Our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our struggles, judgments, negative comparisons, I was teaching a meta retreat some years ago, and uh, this woman came in for a meeting, and as, as many people had reported, having a hard time with the practice, feeling a little numb, feeling the phrases were dry, and just feeling this numbness in her heart, this frozenness. And so we did a little uh, inquiry, a little guided meditation, and have her, I was having her sense her heart, and and she said, it's, it's like a lump here, like a, like a nut, like a hard walnut. And she was a farmer, as it turns out. And so we're using that metaphor of, the, of watering the, the nut with warmth, with care, with kindness, with the warmth of the sun. And just invited her to, to be with that and to bring the practice of loving-kindness to that hard frozenness. And I certainly remember that in my own practice, a sense of frozen heartedness. Anybody else have that? Maybe a little numbness, a little shut down? Right. So, she, so, the, so she stayed with it and just sat with it, put a hand on her heart, sent meta to the heart, tears started to flow, and she said, 
I saw again later in the retreat that the tears were like um, rain on the hard ground and the tears started to water this, this hardened nut in the heart that started to crack open and out of this, this hard nut came a seedling, a little sapling. So can we meet where we are? Can we meet how humbling it is to be where we are? Maybe we think we've got great concentration, we've meditated 20 years and we can barely get through a set of phrases without spacing out. May I be hippie and dippy, may I be nappy and, you know, just the strange things, may I be well frozen and, and, and I've certainly said the weirdest and wackiest things to myself. May I be filled with greed, I remember saying once. So, it's good to laugh at ourselves, good to not take ourselves too seriously. And good to be patient with ourselves, with our foggy mind, our wandering mind. To be also skillful with the phrases, you know. The point isn't to be a metaphrase factory. You know, I had one teacher similar to the story that Sharon shared, where he said, say them as quick as you can. <laughs> maybe well, maybe happy, maybe well, maybe happy. <laughs> and I wondered why the practice wasn't really going anywhere. <laughs> it was just this mechanical rote thing. And somebody else said, oh, don't do that. Slow it down, feel them, feel the, the meaning. Have some texture, take your time, savor them. And so what I, uh, what I ask of myself is to find, can I say this genuinely in this moment? Can I say this with meaning in this moment? And usually I can find somewhere in myself that can actually connect to that genuineness. So one of the things that, that we come up against as we, as we sit a metacourse is when we're not used to generating this quality of heartfulness all day. Maybe we can, you know, maybe you add it onto your practice at the end of a sit, your daily sit. Maybe you do it somewhat in your, in your week. But when we come to uh, generate this quality all day, every day, I know for myself in the beginning, it sort of disappears. It's like, where did it go? I, I feel like I have relatively good access to loving kindness, but somehow when I, f- when I first come to a retreat, it seems so inaccessible. And again, I've become familiar with that pattern and it's, it's almost like the mind gets scared. Oh no, retreat. Oh no, loving kindness. Disappear. Hide away somewhere. Don't get too big. Or as I heard today in a group, someone said, um, uh, you know, feeling like it's not okay to wish myself well. Not okay to take this time, you know. I think often in from religious conditioning or otherwise, um, there's the view it's this too self-indulgent to give all this time to myself. You know, all these people are suffering in the world. Who's suffering is way more painful than mine, right? So maybe we feel guilty, or we feel like we're not worthy to take the time. And as you know, there's a famous, there's a Buddhist uh, that, a phrase from the Buddha who said, you know, I searched high and low and I saw 
no one more worthy and more deserving of loving kindness than my very own dear self. And we are worthy to take this time to nourish and nurture and cultivate the heart. And it's actually a very delicious um, luxury that you've given yourself to take this time to uh, both cultivate and hopefully abide in this quality. So one of the things I want to talk about today is, is kind of the trajectory of the practice. That there's a certain, I see a certain rhythm as I teach and watch people uh, develop loving kindness. And often one of the first things that we're encountering is the limitation or the constriction or the obstacles to our heartfulness, to, our, to the boundless quality of the heart. And I think we all know love in certain ways that's you know, often more restricted to those nearest and dearest, maybe to our cat or our dog or a loved one. But we st- when we're invited to radiate uh, in different ways to different people, we start to see there's actually quite a few constrictions we see maybe how conditional it is that we have cultivated love for those who love us or like us or kind to us. But there may be being a whole purview of people outside of that, a whole wealth of people, species. You know, there's a sense of tribalism, right? There's a sense of tribalism, nationalism that's uh, rearing its head and we maybe extend our heart to those in one's tribe. Perhaps, however, however we understand our tribe or our people. Although our love has a certain uh, agenda quality to it. The agenda of I'll love you if you don't leave. I'll love you if you share my views. I'll love you if you reciprocate. I'll love you fill in the blanks. And of course, when we're calling to mind and and wishing matter for various people, we see those those start to come up. We see the ways that we're constricted in those relationships. (coughs) Or we see that our love is restricted to those who share our political views. They're living in a very contentious political time. How challenging is it to wish love for those who, say, have political views different than yours, who voted different than you? I remember hanging out with a dear friend of mine uh, after the election, and um, we were discussing uh, the state of the world, as you do, and I was talking about my uh, sorrow around climate change and the denial of climate science. And he started to talk about the, the point of view. Well, you know, the, there are some scientists who don't say that it's, you know, it's fully worked out yet. There is the, you know, 
what, two to three percent of scientists probably funded um, who don't believe uh, climate science is either real or caused by human uh, you know, uh, activity. And I was kind of, <laughs> um, how was I? Well, I wasn't exactly boundlessly loving in that moment. <laughs> At first I was a little shocked. I was like, really? Come on. Like, how many decades of good science do we need to see this as actually really a crisis? And, but I just noticed how my heart shut down and hardened. And, I'm like, and I thought to myself, if this is a good friend of mine, and I can't keep my heart open because he has a differing view about climate change, I got some work to do here like real work. And it was actually a really great wake-up call um, and uh, invitation for me to see how can I engage with him and people like him who have very different views than me and still not want to push them out of my heart. Or only wish them matter when they come over to my side. Sometimes we have the conditioning and the view, well, I doubt it because you're here, but you may have in the past that this is, you know, it's a soft skill. Maybe, you know, compassion is becoming uh, one of the skills that's taught in resilience training at work. I, I teach a lot in healthcare and through the doorway of compassion and resilience. And um, there's a fear amongst people in general, managers, executive level folks that I work with, um, that if I cultivate the heart, I'll be too soft. I won't be able to make hard decisions. I'll lose my edge. I often say it might be an edge worth losing, (laughs) a softening of that edge, you know. Or we see that it's hard for us to extend matter to people either that are causing us harm, causing others harm, causing suffering in the world. So this practice really leans into the, the restrictions and the boundaries and, and also our equanimity. How do we stay balanced when dealing with suffering and uh, harm? You know, I was chatting with my dear friend the other day whose teenage daughter is expressing a lot of hatred for her, for her mom. And how hard that is for her, both just deeply painful that that relationship is, you know, in that painful teenage phase. And, and you know, she has a very deep loving heart for her child. And it's also very painful at times to stay open because it's so hurtful. What, what comes from her, and I'm sure many of you have been through that. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood, so I grew up in Northern England in a pretty uh, rough, uh, pretty violent uh, working class area. And, um, and growing up Catholic, and as a Catholic we were a minority and we were somewhat persecuted in different ways. And um, both schooling and also picked on and physically there's a lot of violence coming our way 
and um, and then I'd go to church and I'd go to this Bible study group and I was told to love my neighbors who basically wanted me out of the neighborhood and um, and it was challenging. How do we love those who hate us? Or think, you know, we should be different than we are, whether it's our sexual orientation or our skin color or whatever. Very hard. Which is why we practice, which is why we come here to find some deeper capacity of the heart. Another place that we see our heart contracts is when we're afraid. I just came from the mountains and uh, from a beautiful wilderness center called Balacitos in northern New Mexico. And when I first used to go there, it was pretty soon after I'd come from England in the early 90s. And in England, it's a pretty benign country in terms of poisonous, predatorial things. <laughs> you know, I think, I know what we have that's threatening bunny rabbits maybe, I don't know. Um, but you know, up in the mountains, in, 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 in the sort of tail end of the, the Rockies, there's bear and cougar and coyote and bobcat and lynx and uh, snakes. And, um, and I was often camping out alone in, in this uh, pretty rustic center and terrified, <laughs> listening to the rustling outside my tent. And I'd heard that the Buddha, remembered that the Buddha taught uh, metta to his monks who were living in the forest, in the jungle, and were terrified of the spirits and the, uh, the beings there. And so I did what I could to practice metta. I can't say it was that tenacious at the time. Um, but it was really easy, to see, really easy to see how as soon as there's fear, the heart can contract and then feel separate other than, and actually one of the things I did to, to dissolve that separation was I decided, because I was in this big cloth tent, this um, tent cabin thing, and everything outside was sort of the enemy. And it was, was so every noise was scary. So I took my bed outside, and I just slept outside. Because the, the tent's not going to do anything anyway. It's just candy wrapper for the cougar. So, you know, it's like, you know, just, just you get it over with. And in that dissolving of the separation of the otherness, actually I allowed my being to relax. And even this time when I was there and I was taking a long hike and I just had the sense there was a bear around and I was feeling a little, you know, sort of cautious. So I started singing metta, I got this metta chant that I sing, and it's completely softened the field, completely softened my, my body. And it was, uh, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll get to see a bear, how exciting from afar, from across the raging river would be okay. And then sometimes we just see that we're so deeply habituated to our mental habits, thinking, planning, ruminating, fault finding, that the, one of the limitations to our heartfulness is just, we're just not, um, we're just not uh, we're not inclining that way. Right? So what we're doing here is inclining. You know, the lovely line from the Buddha, whatever the mind and heart frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination 
of the mind and heart. So what we're doing here with the phrases is we're continually inclining towards kindness, towards seeing the good, towards sensing our own goodness. And so, so we practice in that way because we're, we're basically, I think of, I think of metta as a, as a deep kind of neural rewiring of the brain. And particularly as I've been reflecting a lot on the critic of late and we're often supplanting negative, critical, judgmental stories and thoughts with kind wishes. And often the, one of the practices I teach with the inner critic is to, as the Buddha talked about, metta as a replacing practice. When you hear the critical voice, well, that was a pathetic meditation. May I be happy? Yeah, but you're walking so fake. I mean, you're just, you know, spacing out. And may I be peaceful? And you get to the lunch line. Oh, I can't believe you took that much. Look how, how, how little the other person took. And may I be free of suffering? And may you go away? And on and on. So as we uh, engage in this, what I call the, the love boot camp, where we're really training our hearts to orient in a, in a, in a perhaps a different direction than normal, right? this inclination towards kindness, We, as I said, meeting where we are and hopefully really having a lot of patience with ourselves. You know, just as I talked about my early practice, having, I felt like my heart was frozen for many years. Like I would do the meta practice and I had a lot of faith when I first undertook this practice and trusted my teacher and just did the practice, even though I didn't really access that much feeling. I could sense that there was some value into the words, felt like they were, you know, as sometimes the, the metas talked about as gentle rain, it felt like there was some raining on my body, particularly in my being, that was softening this frozenness and numbness. I just took a walk before uh, the talk and uh, I noticed a lot of you walking outside and one of the things I'm hoping, as, as you know, I do a lot of my teaching and my practice outside is, um, is that you also able to see how, um, well, one, to see what supports you. And one of the great instructions I remember receiving from Sharon, I think, when I was doing a long retreat here on Metta, was you know, practice, you know, practice in a way that supports you, including where you walk. And so for me, it was walking outside because I felt like the nature was a beautiful support for opening the heart for connection, for feeling a place of uh, intimacy and feeling my, my sense of being welcome in the web of life. Um, so I wish for you that you can also be outside, those who like to be outside, and actually really um, feel uh, perhaps a loving presence coming from the land, or at least feeling not judged by the land, which you're not. So I want to share a poem that some of you will be familiar with, and I think it really speaks to what happens uh, when we're outdoors and, and feeling our place in the scheme of things. 
It's Wild Geese from Mary Oliver. She says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and trees, the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So hopefully one of the coming homes in this practice, you come home to yourself, but you also come home into the sense of your place in, maybe it's this family, maybe it's in the wider family, as she's pointing to. One of the ways that I've learned to practice metta and also teach metta is, particularly with loving kindness for ourselves, is to play with different ways of doing that because often that can feel like it just hits a brick wall. So one of the useful ways to start is to uh, wishing metta for the body. And each time you say a phrase, imagine the phrase is rippling through the body like, a, like a, when you drop a pebble in a pond. And you may you may even do a body scan where you're you're just going through your body. May my feet be well. May my legs be happy. May my belly be healthy. And so you're just loving and appreciating this body, this vessel that you're in. Very important to to feel as you. So the phrase isn't just a, a mental statement. It's actually an embodied quality. May I feel safe? And you allow yourself to notice, is there safety in the body, in this space? May I feel at ease? And you allow yourself to feel at ease in the body. One of the things I noticed as I was cultivating metta in my early practice was I started to feel appreciation rather than judgment. I started to feel gratitude for the body, for its amazing, magical wonders of breathing and healing and moving and all the amazing things that the body does and the senses do. And one of the things I notice with students is um, the, the, the more likely as we cultivate this self-cherishing, particularly for the body, that we're gonna take care of it better. A little more attuned to what we're putting in our bodies to what toxins are going in, to what we're exposing our body to in terms of our environment. And so we can develop a more caring attitude rather than judging ourselves for having aches and pains and fatigue or whatever it is that you're afflicted by. There can be a sense of, oh, you're holding yourself, holding your body with care. And so as you walk through this week together, and the body goes through its aches and pains and tiredness, can you bring that loving attitude? Because one of the facets of metta is it's an attitude in which we meet experience. And so can we meet this body with kindness, 
Can we meet it with care? Can we meet it with love? Byron Katie, in uh, one of her books, she's talking about her own body and she says, I'm happy to be this 63-year-old woman. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love I'm not any smarter than I am. I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose. I love that some mornings I'm almost blind and there's just a haze of world and I can barely see where I'm going. I love where my hands have been put and I love how I'm breathed and positioned and angled. Can we come to love our body like that? However it is, whatever weight, size, shape, uh, etc. Possible. We have moments of that. We have glimmers of, we look in the mirror sometimes on a meta retreat and rather than just seeing what's wrong, we go, oh, Maybe you say in the mirror to yourself, I love you. I had a friend who did that. I was actually, I think it was was, uh, recommended by her. She would wake up in the morning and have the whole list of things she had to do and things she hadn't done and how she wasn't good enough. And and I think a therapist told her to say just hello. Just say hello to yourself in a kind of kind way. So she did that for a while. And it it helped. It really did help change her attitude. And then at some point she added... Uh, and that was good morning, and then she had a good morning, I love you. Good morning, I love you. So you wake up in the morning, you wash your face, look in the mirror, not, oh God, look at the wrinkles, the gray hair. Oh. <laughs> good morning, I love you. What would that be like? Oh, good morning, may you be happy. Good morning, may you have a great day. One of the things I also see arising as people cultivate metta is actually a, a healthier sense of boundaries. It is one of the things people fear being lost with a loving and open heart is boundaries. Is actually that actually we become more um, uh, mindful of what works and what doesn't work, and more more able to to express that. Very interesting. Uh, paradox because it seems like one would lose that in that openness but actually there's a greater clarity it's, and it sometimes comes out as a fierceness a fierce love as I said we can start to um, f- uh, build up a reservoir of goodness or kindness that is the ballast and a counterpoint to the critic you know, I, I, when I'm teaching my critic workshops I one of the main practices I'm advocating is the loving-kindness practice because it really does build up on a much deeper level the reservoir of self-regard, of positive self-regard, kindness. I had a friend, student who um, used to, she made this comment, she, in the backyard, she'd notice how the squirrels would fatten up in winter and you know, with the with the coming of the cold, with the and then shed the 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 weight in spring. And she noticed she also put on more weight in winter, less physical activity, more food, colder, and but shed it in spring. And she had no judgment for the for the squirrel. <laughs> but as you can imagine, a lot of herself. And I remember working with a student for a long time uh, who, was, who was a sex worker and, and uh, got into the practice of mindfulness and then deep practice of loving kindness. And at some point in, that, in the 
deepening of her practice, she, she realized she couldn't do that to her body anymore. She couldn't do that work. There's a very beautiful flowering of that self-regard, self-love. And then also what I see arise, and certainly it was true for myself, is the, you know, that, the relationship between kindness and compassion. That as we open our heart to ourselves, that we have more access to forgiveness. And just seeing our, seeing our humanness, seeing our, our foibles, and instead of criticizing ourselves for them, there's just like, yeah, of course, I'm human. I get vulnerable, I get scared, I make mistakes, I forget things, I lose things. Guess what, so I'm human. And when my critic gives me a hard time for losing things as I am often want to do. I think of water bottles and hats and scarves as just, you know, dana to the world. And um, my critic has another view about that. I said, well, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so over time, as we, as we you know, nurturing these deeper grooves of kindness, um, it starts to really change the fabric of our being. It starts to become much more second nature. It becomes more available, more accessible, more uh, first response to the world rather than the reactive response. Like when I was flying and I was having to deal with people and I was feeling very frustrated, but the attitude was much more of, yes, I'm pissed off that I'm being delayed a lot and I'm also caring that there's a human being in front of me who's, who's, whose fault it is not. So a poem from Mary Oliver that I think beautifully expresses what happens as we cultivate over, the, and this is over years and maybe even decades. Uh, it's a poem dedicated to her grandmother. She says, On cold evenings my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor. So, she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself but being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. So maybe that's, you know, when we get older and we, you know, maybe half our mind flows back to whoever it flows back to. What remains is what we practice. What we practice is what we become. If we want to, you know, in our later years have a flowering of kind-heartedness, then what are we practicing today? What we are today is largely a result of what we practice prior, what we've been prior. So we can start setting in motion an orientation of kindness, starting with how we are, how we meet this moment. One of the things that also arises as we cultivate this quality is a certain attunement and a sensitivity. There's a, the, the, the quality of kindness begins to uh, affect the way that we respond to the world, the way that we tune to others, the way that we attune to the suffering in the world. I'm going to talk later about compassion, so I'm not going to go so much into that today, but um, I wanted to share this story from Alexis, actually, who teaches here some. 
and we were teaching a meta course uh, together at Spirit Rock, and he had to leave early. And uh, on his way home, driving home uh, at night, he hit a deer, um, which is a very tragic thing to do. And he said, for the next 30 minutes, I got out of the car and kneeled quietly in the nightlit meadow as the, as the deer struggled to stand over and over again, but kept collapsing. I find myself whispering, oh, my friend, I am so sorry. Take all the time you need, there's no rush. Take all the time you need. I held metta in my heart for the deer, and I held metta in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell, tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, of feeling into the sacred space. And this is a very tender-hearted response to a very tender-hearted experience. Right? And you can see how in, the, in that meeting, there's a beautiful ability to stay really present to the, the vulnerability, to the pain, to the sorrow on you know, the loss of life. And I think also, you know, that's a more extreme example, but I think also just in ordinary ways, kindness becomes more available. Whether it's talking to a friend or greeting a stranger, or holding a door open, or, you know, as, as Sharon was pointing to yesterday, um, you know, when you're in the store, when you're dealing with a stranger, you know, I, I love the phase of the practice when we're cultivating metta for strangers, for neutral people, because that's most of the world. And we start to see that there's this whole swathe of humanity that we've mostly ignored or been disinterested in. And yet as we cultivate and open our hearts, we can have very beautiful, profound connections at the bus stop and at the airport and with the taxi driver and at the bank and with your postman, you know, when the heart is available and responsive. And, and of course it, it involves this integration of mindfulness and matter, which is really the, the fruition of a mature practice. So we are able to to nurture and develop that quality of um, kind presence with ourselves. We cultivate that presence with others. We start to see more the goodness in others. We're perhaps less quick to judge, perhaps less quick to react to when we see someone inflicting pain, but actually see, can look at the deeper causes. Ultimately, I think of metta as a wisdom practice. It helps us to deeply understand human nature, understand the heart, understand suffering, understand fear, understand how to stay open in the midst of all that. I have a friend, Jack Verdun, who runs the Insight Prison Project in, in um, in California, and he does this amazing work with inmates, mostly at San Quentin, uh, mostly high security, lifers, and sometimes death row. And 
he told this beautiful story of he was with these men uh, and it's a mentorship program so there's a large group of men in each one's uh, younger paired with a uh, person who's been in for a lot longer and um, they were talking about suffering and the pain that they'd been through and all of them had been through very difficult lives and one of these uh, of the one of the young, younger men um, said, I now get uh, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. And his mentor said, and yes, and healed people, heal people. And so partly what we're doing here is healing our own hearts. Challenges. The way the trapdoor of the heart becomes closed. And in that, you know, one of the interesting things about a meta retreat, it's true of retreats in general, silent retreats, that it can seem very solitary. It can seem very isolating. And if this is a new form for you, you may be feeling that. And there's also something very profound in the silence and also in the loving kindness as we start to extend our hearts to each other, where there's a sense of giving and receiving. You can be sure somewhere on the retreat, if you're, you know, where, however you're feeling, particularly if you're feeling down, probably somebody's wishing you metta. So let yourself feel open to that. But there's also a sense of the way we can actually feel a tangible sense of connection in the silence. Tangible sense of our common humanity. And as our heart grows, as our heart matures, um, we may find that kindness, care, love, becomes what, um, in the diamond approach, which is a school I study with, um, they call a station, where it's not, you're not such a fleeting visitor to the realm of kindness, but it actually becomes the orienting principle of your life. It's the way that you think, it's the way that you decide, it's the way that you meet others, it's the way that you hold yourself, it's the way that you move in the world. Not that you're always this, you know, I, you know, idyllic kind person, but that's the orienting um, you know, principle of your being. And there's an, in that orienting, there's a there's an intention. To, to move in the world and to relate through that doorway, through that lens, through that capacity. And of course you're human and you don't always live up to that, but there's that, it's, it be, it's, it's in, in, in a similar way, in the way that mindfulness establishes itself at some point and awareness becomes sort of the fabric of your being in the same way that as we cultivate love and kindness, it becomes the basis of your heart and the the harming or the reactivity is is become such a glaring contrast to the general flavor of your experience that it's actually a little bit like jarring when it happens and you see it more clearly and you're much more likely to not buy into it feed it act out of it
And then there are times out of that, and we have those moments in retreat where we also feel the, the boundless quality. You know, the Buddha talked about radiating kindness to the entire world, upwards and unbounded, above, below, in all directions. Right? And at times we can feel also our heart has that capacity to be vast and radiant and inclusive and beautiful. And, but that, that state comes and goes. But the, what I'm talking about, this orienting principle, this, this, the, the quality of kindness being, becoming more embedded in the fabric of your life, in the fabric of the way that you orient and respond to the world, that is the fruit of the practice that we all have the capacity to live into. And I'll close with these world, words from Desmond Tutu. I want to also come back to where we are, which may not be feeling <laughs> like met as the fabric of my being and it's boundless, but it's actually, it's really hard and boring. And, and he says, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. Do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little, bit of, little bits of good, or I'd say kindness, put together that overwhelm the world. So let's just sit together for a minute. As Rumi said in one of his poems, there are no edges to my loving now. Thank you for your attention. So we'll have some walking practice and then some sitting and chanting. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.